So we're in uh, week two of this, and we're going to be right where Pastor June left off. So he was in Acts chapter 9, verses 13 through 16. We're going to pick up in verses 17 through 20. But before that, I want to give you a little recap of what's going on from Acts 1 to 8. You don't have to take notes on this. Just follow along. Acts 1, the disciples are there. They're with Jesus. Jesus ascends into heaven, says, wait for the Holy Spirit. He's going to give you power. And when he does, you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So they go and they wait. They're kicking it, waiting for the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit comes in Acts 2, and they go out. Peter preaches this phenomenal sermon. I mean, this dude delivers a word that 3,000 people respond to. I've never talked to 3,000 people. Yet 3,000 people responded to this word, and the organism of the church continues to grow. And then after that, they have this crazy generosity. The church continues to grow. Peter preaches another sermon after he brings this man who was lame up. And now he's preaching this other sermon. 5,000 more people give their lives to Jesus. I mean, this dude is on fire right now. Like best preacher there is because he's pretty much the only one. But then he gets to this place in Acts 4 where he's arrested. And they're like, yo, this might be the end for us, guys. They say, hey, don't preach about Jesus. And he's like, no, we're going to keep preaching. And so they keep preaching. They let him go. And they're like, well, that was crazy, guys. Like, we got caught, but we're going to keep preaching, right? So they keep preaching. Acts 5 comes. Ananias and Sapphira. At the end of Acts 4, there's this statement that says the church increased in their generosity. This church was a generous church. They lived in irrational and beautiful generosity. Ananias and Sapphira want to take part in this. And so they say, let us take part. Let us sell everything we have and then give the proceeds to the church. Well, Ananias and Sapphira get this, and they're like, well, this is a lot of money, y'all. Well, you just want to keep this, Sapphira? Sapphira's like, yeah, let's keep it. Let's keep some for it. Let's give some to the church, but let's keep some. Just a word of wisdom. What you give to God, don't keep anything for yourself. What you have pledged to give to God, give him everything. Because if you don't, you're going to kill your relationship with him. Ananias and Sapphira end up dying. Not great news for them. Then the rest of Acts 5 happens, and these dudes are so excited that they get to suffer the same way Jesus suffered. They get beaten for the gospel, and they're like, yo, we got it now. Like, we bear the marks on our back. They're excited about it. They're, they got, they're in a different world than me. <laughs> Whatever I'm about to suffer, I'm like, oh, my gosh, no, 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 no. But they're like, yes, we did it, guys. We made it to Jesus' level. And then Acts 6 comes, they put their hands on these seven individuals and they employ them to deliver food and be the people who would take care of the, the, the group of people that was marginalized in the Hellenistic Jews, these widows. And so they do that. They employ these two guys, or seven guys, but these two are really mentioned, Stephen and Philip. Stephen and Philip. Stephen, it says, a man full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit. As he was going places, signs, wonders, miracles were happening around him. And then he gets caught. Acts 7 comes and Stephen gets this phenomenal defense. At the end of this defense, he tells them, hey, y'all don't know this, but I'm about to tell you, the house of the Most High is not built by human hands. And it's like this punch in the gut to these dudes because they have thought the synagogue was the place where it was the most holy and God was. And so Stephen's out there like, boom, nah, bro, he's with me. He's not with y'all. And so they're like, oh, we got to kill you, bro. We got to kill you. So Saul comes in the picture in Acts 8, and these dudes, all these people who were mad at Stephen, throw their coats in front of Saul, signifying that they don't have the authority to do what they want to do, but Saul can give them the authority to do what they want to do. So they throw their coats in front of him. Saul says, go ahead, stone him. They stone Stephen. 
And then Acts 9 comes, and this is where we get the story of Saul. Pastor June touched on it, the, the, the incredible transformation. Saul's primary focus was to destroy the church. That's what his focus was. All he wanted to do was destroy the church and rise through the ranks of the Pharisaical life. We pick up in verse 17. It says this, Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. He got up and was baptized. He took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Will you pray with me, church? Lord, we love you. God, we ask that you tonight would open our minds to understand this scripture and open our hearts to receive what you want to tell us. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name we give glory because of your loving kindness and because of your truth. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I titled this message, Sticky Church. Sticky Church. Um, you ever been around somebody you just wanted to stay around? Like, you just were like, man, I got around you and we've been here for like six hours and I don't really see any time in the future where I'm going to be leaving. Like, I'm just going to stay here. No, just me. Okay. <laughs> I was waiting for a response and then nobody said anything. So I was like, oh, maybe it's just me. When I was in school in college, me and my friends, we started this thing where it was the lobby. That's where we hung out. We were in this dorm called Funkhauser. Let me tell y'all, this was the spot to be. And it was just me and this one guy at the beginning. And then afterwards it continued to grow. And so we started having like movie nights. We started having like game nights. We'd order pizza. We'd not do homework. Like it was a great moment. It started out with just me and one guy, and then every single day it was like, yo, you trying to come to the lobby? And they were like, yeah, I'm going to come to the lobby tonight. You'll see me tonight. And I was like, cool, we're going to have a great time. We'd stay there till like 2, 3 in the morning. Then we'd get up, 7, 8, go to breakfast, eat some food, go to lunch, do the classes and everything, and then get back to the lobby after like a couple hours. Then we'd hang out in the lobby some more, and we just, and it was this whole thing that everybody knew who we were. It was like I was there enough to where everybody who walked through the dorm was like, yo, what's up, man? And I was like, I'm here again. <laughs> like, I've been here. I'm staying here. And that was so cool for us because people kept coming. People kept coming. And it was something that was so beautiful to us. That's what the church is supposed to be like. It's supposed to be this sticky environment where people just keep showing up because there's something special about the way we do relationship. It's supposed to be this organism that makes you feel seen Heard, known, and deeply loved. And when we do church right, the world sees Jesus. This is the goal of the church. We want to be a sticky church so that they can see Jesus. My first point, I've got three points for you. I'm going to give them all to you right now. First point, Paul or Saul at this moment stayed in the house. And then he stayed in community. Then he spoke the truth. Let's talk about this first point. He stayed in the house. Let's go back to verse 17. This is really cool. So Ananias departed and entered the house. After laying hands on him, he said to him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me that you may regain your sight. Now, we talked. Pastor June talked about this last week. Saul, or Saul was in this building for three days. Let's put ourselves in the position of Saul really quickly. 
he was, a, he was an enemy of the church, not because the church hated him, but because he didn't like the church. He was persecuting the church, killing the Christians, and he wanted to do more of that. That's what he was on his way to Damascus to do. He was a man who was rising through the ranks of the Pharisaical ladder better than anybody else in the history of it. He talks about this in Galatians, and he talks about how he was the best at his job. And then he talks about in Philippians how he was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Essentially, he was given his accolades like, yo, I'm the guy, so y'all should have been worried about me. Saul is giving all of his stuff. And when he's in this house, he's the most helpless he's ever been. He's sitting in the house of his enemies. Let's think about this for one moment. He can't see. He's in the house of his enemies, and he just gave the order to have one of their people killed. Let's go into the mind of Saul. Everybody close your eyes really quickly. Oh my gosh. This is the end, guys. I've just done something that they definitely won't forgive me for. I don't know how to bounce back from this. I'm terrified because I I could be breathing my last breath right now. I'm sitting in the house of my enemies waiting for them to come to me. I don't know what's going to happen. All I know is that they know what I did to them. I'm a little scared. Saul is at this moment where he's confused. You can open your eyes. Sorry. I just, you can open your eyes. He's at this moment where he's confused. He's a little bit scared, probably very frustrated because the thing he's familiar with the most in seeing has been taken away from him. You know what God will do sometimes? He'll take away the thing that you're most familiar with so that you can see more clearly. He'll make that really clear because what you're most accustomed to or what you're most familiar with, he'll start to remove that so you can have a greater idea of what he looks like. And that I can tell you one thing is the privilege of heaven to be able to see Jesus more clearly. It's not a punishment that you get something taken away. It's a privilege that God decides to take something away. Start considering it like that. Saul is in this moment scared probably because he's thinking they know what I did. You ever walk into church and think somebody knew what you did? And you're like, man, they're going to find out. <laughs> like God already told them they hear from the Lord. Oh my gosh, I can't approach them. The good news is this. Saul didn't really have to do anything except stay in the house. All he had to do was wait. Let's go to Ananias's position. Ananias knew about Saul very clearly. The word went around about Saul, this guy who was persecuting the people of the way, who was killing Christians. They knew about Saul. Ananias knew about Saul. So when Jesus showed up to him and said, hey, I want you to go to Saul. And he was like, hold on, hold up real quick. This dude's killing my people. You want me to go to him? You sure? Yeah, he's a chosen instrument of mine. You're going to tell him. So Ananias ends up going. And he's sitting there like, oh, my gosh, man, I'm, I'm a little scared because I know Saul and Saul knows about what we do and he doesn't want us to do it anymore. So I'm a little scared because I'm not entirely sure what's going to happen in this moment. But I've had a word from heaven. I've had a vision from heaven. So I'm going to go. I'm going to go. So Ananias begins his journey of walking towards Saul. Now, Saul's still in this house. Three days he spends. What kept him there? Was it that he couldn't see? I don't think so. Was it that he didn't know where he was and his people were gone from him because they left at the sight of the, and the sound of Jesus? No, I don't think that's what it was. I think he stayed 
because he saw a vision of heaven. What keeps you in the house? What keeps you in the house? Because what should keep you in the house when somebody offends you is the vision that you have from heaven. What should keep you in this house is what God told you to do and how he told you to be with this people. Because when they see that you stay, even when they've offended you, it gives them the opportunity to show up to your doorstep and say, hey, I've got something for you. Let's transform back into Ananias really quickly. Ananias shows up at this door. He's at the door of Saul. He knows Saul's in there. They probably have somebody stationed out there to make sure Saul didn't run away. And so he's standing at this door and he's probably sitting there like, I'm going to do it this time. And so he goes in there, he opens his door, but he doesn't say anything. Saul's still blind y'all. So all he hears is the door open. I don't know what it sounded like, but it's probably like one of these shaking moments where Ananias is at the door and he's like, bang, the door opens. And then Saul's sitting there quiet. Ananias walks up to him. Now his steps probably weren't that loud, but I'm just, you know. And what he does probably brings terror to Saul. He puts his hands on him first. Saul can't see, and he's probably having all these thoughts. I'm going to die. And so Ananias, the first thing he does is put his hands on him. Saul's probably like, man, my heart's racing. This is the end. Like Ananias going straight up, mark me. And then these words come out of Ananias' mouth. Brother Saul. What happened to Ananias that he could consider Saul his brother before he met him, though he knew what he did? What made Ananias bold enough to say brother when he knew who Saul was? It's one thing. He'd already received forgiveness from Jesus, so he could freely give forgiveness from Jesus. Ananias was no different than anybody else on planet earth and that he'd sinned. So he needed the freedom and the forgiveness of God to be able to go to him. So when he heard that this vision of God, who this man saw was persecuting the church, he showed up at his door, was able to say brother, because he'd already made a decision beforehand when he left the house of his house to go to Saul, that Saul was already a brother before he left his house. Y'all didn't hear what I said. Ananias made a decision that somebody who was his enemy was already his brother. He already decided, I'm not going to keep him at arm's length. I'm going to bring him even closer. He didn't just call him friend. He didn't just call him, hey, Saul, I know who you are. He said, brother Saul. This whole sentence, this two words, I can imagine it probably brought peace and joy and a satisfaction that Paul had never felt in his life. Pharisees didn't really operate in grace. They operated in consequences. Saul, not just Saul, brother Saul. What kept Saul in this place was that he had a vision from God. What let Ananias go there? He had a vision from God. You know what keeps you with the people? God. It's not your commonalities, it's not your likability, it's not your charisma. It's not your friendliness. It's not even your beauty. It's God. And when we have submitted to God and we stay with God, we can stay with the people. You need to give yourself over to the Lordship of Jesus so that you can be with this people. And when you are with us after this time, we're going to have some fun in the lobby. When you are with us in the lobby, that's when the development of relationship happens. And we can really get into this place where we're calling each other brother and sister like we've never done before.
There's this story, uh, this woman named Corrie Ten Boom. Uh, we probably know her, some of us do. She was a Holocaust survivor. And um, she wrote this book called Amazing Love. It's a great book. She has this excerpt in there, this story, and she's talking about how she was preaching in Holland and she was preaching about the forgiveness of God. And the next thing you know, she's done preaching and this guy comes walking towards her. The custom was that everybody walked away, but this guy comes walking towards her. And she's sitting there and the closer he gets, the more she recognizes him. Now he doesn't know who she is, but she recognizes him. And she realizes that he was from the concentration camp I was in. And so he gets closer. He says, great message. You know, the forgiveness of God is something that really special. And you know, God forgives everybody, right? And she's sitting there just shocked because she cannot believe this man who was at this concentration camp she was in where she was going to die is now sitting in front of her. And so she's like, she's processing in her head. She feels the pain. She doesn't know how to respond. And so he's sitting there talking and she's like, well, what do I do? What do I do? He says, now God forgives, right? Will you forgive me? He doesn't know who she is, but she knows who he is. And she says it feels like hours that she's sitting there. His hand is out. He's waiting for a handshake in return. And she says, I can't preach about the forgiveness of God and not live it. So what she does is she sticks out her hand, grabs this man by the hand. And then, no, you know what words come out of her mouth? Brother, I forgive you. Now, this was a man who had seen her at her lowest, at her worst, who had uh, embarrassed her, abused her, who had was really on the verge of killing her. And did kill her sister. And she's sitting there. And what she describes is this. She says, I have never felt the forgiveness and the love of God more so than I did in this moment. Because when I reached out my hand to shake his and say, brother, I forgive you. The, the forgiveness and the love of God washed over me. You want to know what makes a sticky church? A forgiving church. If you want to be a sticky church, we need to forgive those who have hurt us consistently. Because I've got a news for you. If you haven't heard it before, people will hurt you. Even Christians will hurt you. So what do we need to be a sticky church? Forgiveness. Consistent forgiveness. Where I'm going to people that I have wronged and saying, hey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. That was out of character. And will you forgive me? It might be difficult. It might be uncomfortable. But we need to swallow our pride and live a forgiving life. Makes a forgiving church. Sticky church is a forgiving church. I think what allowed Saul to stay in this community was the forgiveness that he received because he wasn't accustomed to that. He was a Pharisee. Pharisees live lives that are rules, 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 not grace. And so when he experienced this grace from this man, he didn't know though. He knew that this was an enemy. It changed his whole world. So in verse 19, it says this, it says, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus for several days. He was with them. He stayed in community. It's only been like a couple days since he's been out killing people. And he, now he's in the community. I think two things happened. One, 
The word of Ananias was strong enough to where it allowed this man, Saul, to enter in and say, he's with me. But then two, I think Saul's willingness to be with them allowed him to stay with them. Saul was looking for something he hadn't experienced in the Pharisaical life. Now, Saul grew up actually in the son of a Pharisee. He grew up where his dad knew the law. He probably taught it to him at a very young age. And so Saul lived a life of Pharisees or Pharisaical life for the better part of 30 years. We think that he came to Christ between 30 and 36. So for 30 to 36 years, he lived a life of no grace, only rules. That's it. So when he gets introduced into this community who forgives, it changes his life. It changes his perspective. You want to know what community does? It helps us see God a little bit more clearly. When you're with a community that loves God and you hang out with them and you go to lunch with them and you talk with them and you sit with them and you live life with them and you hang out and you play games with them and you get a little bit of a picture of how they see God, it shapes the way you see God. And then what you didn't know about God becomes commonplace to you. And then the person that doesn't know, you get to bring them into it too. When you're in community, when you stay in community, you get a greater understanding of who God is. Saul needed to understand who God is, not from the Pharisees because he understood that. He needed to understand from the relationship because he didn't understand that. You've been living your life with a lot of rules. Consistently condemning anybody who breaks them. You've been living with a little bit of anger and frustration because you're chasing after perfection, but you can't seem to get it. This life isn't about perfection. It's about relationship. And when we live with relationship, it completely shuns perfection. Because when we see Jesus, we see that he did everything that we couldn't do so that we could be with him. We don't need to be perfect because he was, and he is, and he always will be. And so Saul comes into this and says, y'all have something that's strange, but I want it. And this is what Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed that we would be one as the father and the spirit and the son are one so that the world would know that he exists. Saul had to stay there because he only knew one way of community. He only knew one way of life. And as he did, he grew. He grew and grew and grew. There's this study that's um, it's called language style matching. It's a psychological study. And what they did is they took people who had been in relationships long and short, and they tried to figure out how they began to speak. And so it, they, the question was, how long did it take for you to start speaking like these people, speaking like the person you'd been with? Some people had been together 15, 20 years. Other people had been together just a couple days. And they learned that the longer you spend time with somebody, the more you begin to sound like them. They learned that it wasn't even a thing that they did to just be socially acceptable. It's because it was constantly ringing in their heads. This is what they were so familiar with. So when they heard it, it's just, oh yeah, that's normal to me now. As Saul stayed with the disciples, he began to understand who God was a little, a little bit more clearly, but he also understood what it meant to speak like them. He understood what it meant to speak like them now because he had been with them for some time. This is a really, really cool thing, y'all. The people you want to be around or the people you are currently around, you probably speak like them. 
you might not know it. So if you're talking about discouragement and you're wondering why you're frustrated and anxious, it might be the people you're around. If you're wondering why you can't forgive, it might be the people you're around. If you're wondering why you can't find truth and find something to hold on to, it might be the people you're around. So what do you need to do? You need to begin to change who you're around so that you can start to speak like they speak. Instead of discouragement, you start to speak encouragement. Instead of hopelessness, you start to speak hopeful. Instead of faithless, you start to speak faithfully. And instead of these things that norm are you, that, that are your norm, you start to begin to do the things that are now the norm of the people you're with. What do you need to do? You need to stay in community. I had, um, um, when I was six years old, maybe seven, my dad might be able to correct it. But when I was about six or seven, I started playing football. And football was the longest relationship I had outside of my family. Like, I played football for 13 years of my life. And as I played football, I learned, one, I learned a lot of stuff. But the one thing that I realized is that it consumed everything about my life. My thoughts, the way I talked, the way I hoped, the way I dreamed, even the way I related to God. And as I got out of football, there were still some things in me that I didn't realize were in me. But then I got to this place where I was around the believers and I was like, yo, I, I read my Bible to gauge how good I am with God. And they were like, you know, that's wrong, right? And I was like, wait, 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 what? What do you mean that's wrong? Aren't we supposed to read our Bibles to gauge how we are with God? No. You read your Bible to know God. The Bible is to give you a clear picture into who God is. In that moment, I began to change. I began to understand that I needed to read my scriptures to know who God was all the more. Not just to gauge whether I'm right or wrong with him, but to know how to be in relationship with him. And it changed me. And then the more I started to hang around these people, I learned how to forgive. Because I didn't know how to before. I was a very angry, bitter person because I didn't get my dreams. I was in college. I was playing football. I loved it. And then a semester later, I felt like the love was stripped out of me. And I was like, whoa, what is this? I played this for 13 years. I don't know what to do. And I was asking my dad. I said, dad, what do I do? He said, if you, quit, if you stop playing, I don't care. I said, I'm done. I'm done playing this. I don't know what happened, but I don't want to play this anymore. And then my backup plan was neurosurgery. And after that, psychiatry. And after that, psychology. I had a lot of plans. I was a very, very hopeful child. And then I get to this place where I'm sitting there and all of my plans are failing one after another. And I'm like, what, what's going on? I've never thought about anything else except these. And I, I met this man who had quit what I considered success because he said one thing God told me to. He was playing professional football. I was in college and he stopped. And I said, what made you quit? He said, God told me to. I said, I don't know what you know, but I don't know that God. I've grown up in this church, but I don't know that God. How does he speak to you? What is he saying? How do we begin to learn this? Like, teach me. He began to teach me. And one thing after another, I began to see God a little bit more clearly. What let Saul see God? Community. Community. You in a small group? Are you living life outside of that small group? Are you going to dinner with people? Are you confessing because confession is a way we start to heal? Are you telling people how you're feeling and the, some of the struggles that you have so that you can be prayed for and held accountable to the standard which God holds you to? 
Are you beginning to live the Christian life in the community, the Christian community that God has given you? Or are you still a silo saying, I've got this. I don't need anybody else because we don't work as silos. We don't work as loners. We don't work in isolation. We work together. God has told us so many times in so many ways, you can't do this alone. Can I tell you that the devil's more powerful than you? Whenever you try to say, no, I've got this. I'm just going to be stronger. I'm going to be more. I'm going to be better. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it even stronger. And then he gets you again. And you're like, man, I already pledged to myself to not do this. And then I get doing it again. What is it that I need? Community. You need people around you who are going to link arms with you to say, you don't have to do this alone anymore. You weren't designed to do this alone anymore. You don't want to do this alone anymore because I'm right here for you. And when you get those people, you stay with them. A sticky church stays together. And then lastly, what happened to Paul? After he was with the disciples for several days, it says this, and this is so cool, y'all. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. What was the truth he began to proclaim? That Jesus is the son of God. That Jesus is the one we'd been waiting for from the Jewish standpoint. That Jesus is the one who would take the shame away that we have. That Jesus is the one who forgives our sins. That Jesus is the one who was the lion and the lamb. That Jesus is the one who was the alpha and the omega. He's the Messiah that we've been waiting for, yet we killed him. That Jesus is the son of God. He began to proclaim this, and not just to anybody, but to the people he was a part of. He began to proclaim in the synagogues, not on the streets. The synagogues were all the religious people were. That's where all the people who were the holiest of holies went and they kind of ran things in that city. And so when he gets there and he's proclaiming the truth and he's speaking to the people that he was a part of, they're probably like, yo, what happened to you, bro? You were just with us and now you've changed up. You switched up. Yep. I sure have. I met Jesus. I sure have. And I want you to meet him too, because he told me, he taught me, he helped me understand that it wasn't about the rules I kept, but it was about the person I know. He began to learn about this. And as he did, he spoke the truth. This was so cool. And I saw this and I learned this. Why did Saul speak the truth so boldly? It was commonplace. It was normal for the disciples to speak the truth. It was normal for the church to speak the truth. It was normal. It was common for them. So when Saul gets around them and he hears them speaking the truth, he has nothing left to do except follow suit. When you get around people who you've let influence you and you get to be with them and they start speaking the truth, the only thing that you start to do as well is do what they do because Paul said very clearly, follow me as I follow Christ. And as we follow people who are a little bit more along the lines of, or, or a little bit longer in their journey of following Christ and we start to follow them as well, we start to live like they live and do, what like, they, do like they do because that's commonplace for the church. You know what's commonplace for the church? To speak the truth. It's commonplace for us to tell people about Jesus. It should be commonplace for us to tell the truth and love to one another and say, hey, I don't know what it was, but you really hurt me and I'd love to sit down with you. It should be commonplace for us to speak the truth because that's what the church does. We can't live like the world who lives in self-denial because we don't have that. We have the truth of heaven right here at every single moment that we get. We should be living the truth. We should be speaking the truth. We should be showing the truth. We should be in the community of truth because that's where Jesus comes. If you want to find the Holy Spirit, come to the people who are supposed to be speaking the truth. 
If you want to find freedom and forgiveness, come to the church because this is the place where you can find it. If you want to know the beauty of heaven, the jewel of heaven, and the person of Jesus, this is the place where you hear the truth. Saul began to speak the truth, and he didn't hold back. This is exciting because it shows the life change in only a week. He sat in that room for three days, and then several days later, he begins proclaiming the truth. You want life change? Spend a week with a believer. You want to be a sticky church? Spend a week with the believers. You want to be a forgiving church? Spend a week with the believers because we'll teach you how to forgive. We'll teach you how to love your enemy and love your neighbor. Sometimes it's harder to love your neighbor than it is your enemy. We'll teach you all of these things because that's what the church does. A sticky church is a forgiven church. That's what Saul experienced. Let's pray. God, we love you. But we're so much more thankful that you first loved us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us be a sticky church. That we would live a life of community, togetherness, and speaking the truth. If there's anybody in this place who's hearing this message and saying, I don't know that I've ever been forgiven by God, but I want that. I just want you to raise your hand. See that hand. Praise God. It's great. Just pray this with me. Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I want to make you Lord. Would you help me to live in relationship with you all the days of my life? I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Church, what makes a sticky church? a forgiven church. If you need to forgive somebody, we can help you. If you need to learn how to be kind, find a small group. They'll help you. Be a sticky church this week. I love y'all.